I'd like to introduce a new concept called horizontal versus vertical dharma, which is a way to both hold the four reflections and your practice life. So what is horizontal dharma? Horizontal dharma is being caught in the continuum of time. It's kind of the clickbait of life itself. We're click, 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 one more thing, and we're going to feel better. It's always, ego is always a horizontal movement of mind. And, you know, the mind is stuck in its own trance, its own movie. So a lot of what we do in life is this horizontal movement. And mindfulness is really a way to kind of break that spell of the horizontal movement, the the blending with our movie. Mindfulness is a great tool to unstick from the horizontal. Teacher Ajashanti once uh, likened horizontal living to tap dancing on top of the void. We're always kind of going and doing on top of just this great emptiness or love, however you want to word it. You know, and even the spiritual path can become a horizontal journey, you know, where uh, we're, we're having this one more thing to complete ourselves. Um, you know, most of us have evolved out of the idea that a person or a relationship is going to complete us. But we often still have this idea on the spiritual path, oh, there's going to be that one thing that spiritual path is going to be the thing that completes us. So, you know, if you can, even on sticking from that horizontal notion that you might have. Um, Paul, do you want to go ahead and put up that cartoon? This is this is a cartoon about how we can make even the spiritual journey uh, a horizontal one. So how to be in the moment and then how to be in the moment after that. And of course, we're reading about it versus doing it. So what is vertical dharma? Vertical dharma is a dropping down, like a martial arts move, like what warriors do, a dropping into your immovable center. It's always here. It's not waiting for another moment in time. It's a dropping down here now to this unshakable you. And an example of this is think about the ocean and you have the white caps, like on a windy day, you have a lot of white caps and that that's like our minds on a normal day, just right. And you don't need to get rid of those waves. You can just drop down and you can even try this now. Just, you know, your mind's up here, just drop down like 20 feet below, which might be, you know, just the rhythm of breath. That can be like the currents down deeper in the ocean. And then you can even drop down to the bottom of the ocean, which is just this quiet, almost primordial presence of you. And notice this is all one thing. You don't need to get rid of anything in time, the thoughts. It's all available in one moment of you. So it's a beautiful practice, this vertical versus this idea of the horizontal. And the meditation that we'll do later today will be a deeper version of this dropping down in the vertical. 
And if you want, like last retreat, I introduced this practice of microdosing, doing small little practices throughout the day. And some one researcher said that that equaled like an hour a day of sitting. There is an importance to doing these little practices. They can add up. And so you could do this as a microdosing practice. You know, am I in the waves on the surface? Or am I, do I want to drop down? And it's just an invitation, these microdosing practices. And dropping down into your depth is more and more being verified by science. In this article, Black Holes May Hide a Mind-Bending Secret of Our Universe, they wrote this. There is the possibility that our three-dimensional universe and we ourselves may be holograms. There's no difference between here and there, cause and effect, inside and outside, or perhaps even then and now. So the multiverses of you, I know that's a popular word here. Well, multiverses of you vertically available here and now. And actually, the vertical is a devotional practice all day long. It's, it's that willingness to drop in. Teacher Modama says, awareness is love. And Deepama Barua, the Vipassana teacher who I wrote a book about, said, from my own experience, there's no difference between mindfulness and loving kindness. And then she added, meditation is love and liberation is great love. So what we're doing today, this meditation is this dropping into the love. So it can be helpful to look at where is your love? Where is your devotion? You know, what do you spend most of your time and energy on? You know, a lot of us are spending a lot of our time and energy trying to manage the horizontal, trying to get things out there to behave in the way that we want them. And we're generally doing two things with our time and energy. We're either fighting or we're hiding. And fighting is, of course, you know, the arguing with reality, going against life, right? But hiding is an interesting thing. It, it's doubt. Hiding is a doubt. It's fear. It's worry. So like I said, we're either fighting or hiding. It's good to look at that. And it's also good to know around our devotion, where are your unconscious commitments in life? These are places where you spend your energy, and often we don't think about it, but they're unconscious ways we spend our energy. You know, are we doing Netflix a lot? Are we grazing with food? Are we going into worry fantasies or concerns? Are we going around and around in something through our day? Checking emails. Right. I think I noticed I have an unconscious commitment to that. So, you know, it's not to get shame about it, but, you know, we bring awareness to these things, like I said, so we can unstick from the movie. Mindfulness allows you to unhook. So when we can bring mindfulness, oh, yeah, that's an unconscious commitment, a devotion I have. I don't even want to have a devotion to that. And then we can just make things more conscious 
in this and get, move out of that trance. So one more idea about accessing the vertical before I go into the four reflections today is the vertical is a really, it's a falling open. Ajashanti said, the nature of everything is to fall open. So if there's anything I want you to get from the talk today, I want you to think about this falling open. And often we're like a fist in life. Again, so this is the fighting or the hiding. Fist obviously is fighting. Hiding is a fist because they remember how turtles do this. They kind of clench and hide. So just you could even try this now. You See how it feels when you're in this mode of fighting or hiding, which is our normal state with most things. And then you can just open the hand. And notice how different that feels. Just opening the hand from that clench to open. Just feeling the difference. I know one of my friends who's a hospice nurse, he helped a woman die by just showing her she didn't know how to let go. And he and so he had her clench her fist and open her hand, clench her fist. And she she died like within a few hours after he taught her that. So we're so clenched, we just don't know how to open. So throughout the day, if you do a microdosing practice, there's another one you can do. Just watch it. Are you this? And then just do that. This and do that throughout constantly throughout the day. Just open your hand. It's making ourselves more porous. So life can flow through us. Closed, open hand. It's really fun practice. So on to the four reflections. The four reflections are the theme of this retreat. And it's a good way to increase our open-handedness of life. These four are part of 59 mind trainings in Tibetan Buddhism called Lojong. And they're called the resolve to begin because they can break that trance of mind. And it says at the bottom of the handout that you have that these are these are the writings of Norman Fisher for the Lion's Roar article. I liked the way he worded it, so I just using his version. I'm not going to say a lot about each of these because they really speak for themselves and you can use each one as like a microdosing practice on its own. But I do have some thoughts or stories on them. And especially the last one, there's some things to say about that. So, Paul, let's go ahead and put up the first one. Number one is the rarity and preciousness of a human life. You can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think. You can love and be loved. Your soul can know beauty. This is an incomparable gift. Stop and take a few breaths to contemplate the gift of human life you have received. So that really speaks for itself, this precious human birth. And a student sent me a poem called Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow from the Zen tradition. There's a, a line in there that's really beautiful that kind of relates to this. 
first reflection. He says, realizing that we are the Buddha and knowing the mysterious truth of the Buddha, we ourselves know that our daily food, clothing, and shelter are the warm body and beating heart of the Buddha. Our daily food, clothing, and shelter are the warm body and beating heart of the Buddha. So this is really a gratitude practice, and it's a wonderful thing to do throughout the day, this preciousness of human birth. And then we have the second training. Death is inevitable and unpredictable. No one can escape death and no one knows when it will come. It comes in the night, in the morning, in the afternoon or evening. It comes at home or while away. You can die this evening, one week from today, one month, one year, one decade. Life is brief. No one knows how long it will last. Children die. Young people die. Old people die. Every day, millions of people depart this life. One day, you don't know when. It will be your turn. Stop and take a few breaths to contemplate this. At any moment, we can die. It's probably one of the most powerful teachings of this lifetime. And really, you don't have to wait till death. You can see that thoughts and emotions are constantly arising and ceasing, being born and dying. The composite you right now is arising and ceasing. So there's this death every moment. It can be good to look at, you know, this, everything's arising and ceasing in what? So death is a teaching on the deathless. I have a dear friend and colleague who's dying right now, and she's on the young side, and she was quite healthy a year ago, completely healthy, and now she's on hospice and has only a few months to live. And so, so death has been in the foreground for me, and also Deepama's daughter, Deepa, died just a few months ago suddenly, of an unexpectedly of a heart failure. So it, there's all these reminders, I'm sure you have your own, of how death can come at any time. And as a spiritual uh, support person to my colleague, I've been helping her focus on what is here now that does not die. What's here now that does not die? And even when the body and mind goes, what will remain? And these are good reflections at any stage in life. What doesn't die? What will remain? The deathless. And lastly, around this um, particular mind training, a good reflection is if you just had five minutes to live, five minutes, what would be important? What would be your go-to? 
in that five minutes. And know this and make this your devotion rather than those unconscious commitments. You know, are we generally have five minutes, we're not going to go to checking emails. Your unconscious, your go-to with five minutes is probably truth or love or peace. So make this your devotion. So this death teaching is what doesn't die and what's truly important. So this third Lojong teaching Suffering is inevitable. No one escapes pain, physical pain, loss, dishonor, disrespect, loneliness, anxiety, panic, stress, fear. Not even the most fortunate among us escapes. These days we divide the world into those who are privileged and those who are not. But in Buddhism, we recognize that all beings born into this world suffer. This is our basic condition. Stop and take a few breaths to contemplate this. Alongside the heaviness of this suffering, I read uh, Sujata, a teacher who's now deceased. He penned a humorous take on this suffering is inevitable. He wrote this, basically life is unsatisfactory because one, it's not perfect. Two, we have only two weeks of vacation a year. Three, our joys are impermanent. Four, no one gets out alive. Five, our bodies have to be washed over and over again. That's my favorite. Six, the freeway is crowded. Seven, we must be taught by pain as well as pleasure. Eight, our name sounds dumb. Nine, we must argue that life is not unsatisfactory. Ten, most of our happiness depends on mere thoughts of the past and future. So he's playing around with the lighter side of his suffering. If you haven't noticed this already, this third Lojong teaching, most of our suffering comes from our thoughts. I call them thought pits. And they're like bottomless pits of thoughts you can swirl around and around in, like about your physical health, you know, some minor ache, and then you're in a thought pit or emotional states. Anxiety, depression are really good thought pits. But the worst of all are these existential thought pits, if you haven't fallen into one yet, about like, oh, life maybe is, has no meaning, or it's all empty, and that there can even be a shame, because while there's no me to even be in a thought pit, so it just adds to, <laughs> it adds to the irony of the thought pit. So most of our spiritual practice is navigating these thought pits. And really, all you can do is label uh, that you're in a thought pit, know they're here, try to not blend with them completely. 
And also when we get in suffering, a really important key is to know that you as the awareness, the awareness you is always bigger than whatever's happening in it, than the thought pit itself. So you as the bottom of the ocean can hold the waves and the breath. You're all of it. You're all of it. Awareness itself is bigger than any mind state. And Sogyal Rinpoche has a chant about thought pits. And you could microdose on um, that chant. I know some people do. They do it over and over again. And his chant goes like this. Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. One last thing to realize about suffering is, you know, when you're under stress and when you're in a suffering mind state, it's the perfect place to watch your ego patterning, to really see what your ego patterning does. Are you fighting or hiding fist or open hand? Suffering's a great place to learn and grow and let go. You know, even in the midst of suffering, you can look at who is it that or what is suffering? Is this related to thoughts? And always coming back to that pure awareness, the bottom of the ocean, you never suffers. Pure awareness is never in danger. Pure awareness is never anxious or afraid. Pure awareness is never depressed. So when you can drop down into that pure awareness, that's the always okay you. This is a true story from my friend Ethan, who's a freediver in Maui. And it's really an example how we can drop into that pure awareness at any time, even in a moment of suffering. And this is a, um, uh, I'll read his story. I was on a boat off Maui with my friends and I decided to swim and free dive for a little while. I was pretty far away from the boat when suddenly I saw a shadow and realized that there was a big shark nearby. I froze and put my hands up in fists ready to punch the shark in the face if it tried to attack. Sure enough, when the shark saw me, it decided to come straight at me. I saw its face and jaws coming closer and closer until it was only about three feet from my face, and then it stopped. I thought for sure I was going to be eaten, but then it looked at me with these massive eyes for a few seconds and suddenly turned its body and slapped me with its tail. As I was reeling from the impact of its tail, the shark swam away. Not sure if the shark was doubling back, I quickly signaled my friends in the boat, and they came and immediately fished me out of the water. The most amazing thing about this experience was that when the shark was swimming towards me, my mind stopped and there was nothing but pure awareness. In those few minutes, there was no fear 
and everything was perfectly fine. The incident showed me that fear is only from the mind. Even on the brink of a violent death, my mind stopped, and I was totally at ease. Since this experience, I don't worry much, and I know that the most powerful thing in life is the presence that can step in at any time. It puts all fear and stress in perspective as mind made. Who would have thought that I could have learned the truth of my ultimate nature from a shark? So finally, we have the fourth mind training, the indelible power of our actions. Throughout our lives and at the time of death, the only thing we have is the power of our thoughts, words, and deeds. These can be allies and protectors, or they can make our lives miserable. Everything depends on how we conduct ourselves. In the end, we can't depend on our bodies, our wealth, or our intelligence, not even our relationships. No one can accompany us on the final journey, but the words, thoughts, and deeds of a lifetime will shape the path we walk. Stop and take a few breaths to contemplate this. Again, this is looking at our devotion. Are we tap dancing on top of the void? Are we fighting, hiding, or an open hand? Is it love or fear? Your true nature as loving awareness has no resistance. I worked as a dialysis social worker here on Maui, and I met a Hawaiian woman in the clinic who really was a complete example of these thoughts, words, and deeds being the ultimate nature. She and her husband had raised over 100 foster children, and they'd adopted 12 of them. And they were both mentors in the Hawaiian community, and they worked full-time for the state of Hawaii. They were amazing people. And they were constant companions. They'd been together for 47 years. And suddenly, her husband died one day of a heart attack. And when she came into the clinic about a week later, I was really expecting her to be bereft with grief. But she was glowing. And so I looked at her and said, well, what, what about the grief, the sadness? I couldn't believe she was glowing. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Amita, we both lived each day to the fullest. We loved to the fullest. We had an amazing 47 years together. What is there to grieve? And she looked me so directly in the eye and so sincerely and she said, what is there to grieve? She was just, that's the living fully with all your actions. And in Hawaii, that's called true aloha, true love. True aloha faces joy and sorrow in exactly the same way. True aloha is like the sun. It shines on everything in exactly the same way. And this is a quotation or slide by Hafiz. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. 
it lights up the whole sky. So this fourth Lojong training is really how we conduct ourselves in life, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, you know, how we bring this quality of the sun, true aloha. And I want to just share um, two practices that I use to bring more of the sun-like quality. And you can use these as microdosing practices. Um, the first is getting the correct language. So, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis in the last five years in Western culture with getting our pronouns right. Like, you know, we have the he, she, they pronouns now with broadening awareness to the language we use because we know that language affects how we think and feel and what we do. However, you know, if you really want to be correct, you would not be using the I language because I is an illusion, right? So why do we want to reinforce the I, me, and mine with our language when it's something that's going to go? So in addition to use he, she, and they, let's start moving and switching out the I language from the selfing and the I, me, and mine to something that's more accurate. Now, you don't need to do this out loud. Of course, people would think you're kind of nuts, but your inside talk. You know, majority of our talk is inside our heads anyway. So this is going to be 90% of the time anyway. Switch out the I language. So what would that mean? Switch out the I language. So most of your day, you're in this thought of the doer you, right? Amita's driving the car. I'm going to work. I'm doing the dishes, right? I'm taking care of the kids. So switch that out and replace with really a more correct pronoun or more enlightened wording, which is the presence is doing the dishes. Awareness is driving the car. Infinite love is going to work. And play around with this if, if, you, if you feel so called to do so. And it's really fun to see which pronouns you use. It really can change how you feel you know, that there's this drudgery of self that we feel when we're the doer. And this just so lightens things up when you play out with the correct pronouns. So instead of even right now, try it right now. I'm listening to this talk, you know, uh, maybe it takes a lot of work. Awareness is listening to this talk. Total different feel, right? Infinite love is listening to this talk. Wow, that's fun. So play around. Again, when you switch out the pronouns like this, it can really end the drudgery of self. It also could really show you where the illusion of your character pops in. Because, you know, if you're saying something like infinite love is angry, it's like, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Awareness is, is resentful. And so you get to see, wait, oh, that's my character just popped in there. And you can have more mindfulness of the character in the movie you. It also gives you an opportunity to see that you went from this infinite awareness to identifying with a character. You went from the sun to a flashlight. You know, was it worth it for whatever you decided to make that fist around? Was it worth it? 
So this kind of practice helps yourself get less and less, not because you have incredible discipline, um, but because you just start to, excuse me, you start to see like, wow, I just went from this to this. And it was absurd to go from complete awareness to something I grasped onto. Again, was it worth it? So there's switching up the I pronouns to what's more true. Second practice that I use to help create more of the sunlight quality is actually switching out the actual perspective. So, you know, we have this perspective of I, me, and mine throughout our whole day. And the Tibetan Rinpoche likened the I, me, and mine perspective to like looking at the sky through a straw. So all day long, we're looking at the sky through a straw. We're still seeing the sky, but imagine you take away the straw. So much more relaxed. Get to see so much more than this limited view of the me perspective. So one day, one way you can switch out this I, me, and mind perspective is ask yourself this simple question throughout the day. How would awareness see this right now? You know, it switches out of you. And it's really fun. You know, you could try this even right now. As you're looking around your room or at the Zoom screen, you've got how you see it. How would awareness itself see this? And like I said, you can use infinite love. How would infinite love see this right now? It's really fun to try in a stressful situation. Like if you go into a crowded restaurant and you're feeling like a little overwhelmed, and you know, that's the me perspective. I'm overwhelmed. You can switch it. How would awareness see this? And often when you do that, you're like, oh, awareness sees every person in the restaurant as amazing. Or it's just seeing the whole gestalt of the restaurant and it's relaxed in that. How would awareness watch the news versus how do you watch the news? You know, it's, it just gives you a whole new perspective that's more open. And it's really fun to try it even with your practice itself, because, you know, the, the spiritual path can get kind of long and hard and we can go, oh, I'm not waking up fast enough or I'm not learning fast enough. And if you go to, well, how does awareness see your spiritual path and your practice? it's kind of funny awareness might be like hey you're gonna wake up when you wake up don't worry about it we're working on it <laughs> or awareness is just silent or laughing so it's it's a great um it's a great thing to try on the switching out of your perspective again and lastly this is devotion it's devotion to speaking and living what's true. It's devotion to falling open into this perspective of love or awareness versus the clinch of the me. And the Buddha called this the boundless heart. And it's part of his phrase in metta, with a boundless heart, one should cherish all living beings. This boundless heart the Buddha talked about is true aloha. It's true living this words and thoughts and deeds of the fourth Lojong teaching. 
And the boundless heart, again, isn't a personal thing. It's not an ownership. And the Buddha actually pointed to this when he taught metta. He said that true metta is like the way a mother cow looks at her newborn calf. It's not a personal, there isn't that personal identification. There would just be this awe and this connection with this thing that just was born. And so there's a reason why he, when he talked about meta, he didn't make it a human personification. So letting your boundless heart be this, just this open awareness love. It's not an I perspective. You know, this fourth Lajon teaching is really about love and how we do love every day. And it's no accident that the two pivotal moments of the Buddha's awakening involved love. The first one, when he was near death of starvation, a woman came along and offered him some rice milk. That was a loving act. And out of love, he took it. He said, I think I should eat. And then that gave him the energy to sit under the Bodhi tree to wake up. And then he was being attacked by Mara, just violently attacked by Mara. And at the very end, Mara finally said, well, I don't even think you have a right to be here the ultimate attack, you shouldn't even exist. And the Buddha, out of love and a vertical, it was a vertical move, he reached down and he touched the earth and he asked just with this complete surrender and love to the earth, do I have a right to be here? It was a question. And the earth responded resoundingly with love. Yes, you have a right to be here. So it completed the Buddha's journey with these acts of love. You have a right to eat. You have a right to exist. And that's what helped him wake up. And I'd like to close the talk with this story of a real life example of the fourth Lojong teaching and these acts of love and how important they are Whatever your acts of love are, this one person's act of love was this, but each one of you has your own acts of love. So some of you have heard this story, I know, but I really like it. So it's worth reflecting on again. It's from Father Gregory Boyle, his book called The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. And Father Boyle started Homeboy Industries, which gives gang members new purpose and meaning in life. He writes this. To get into our 18-month program, you take a drug test. And if you are clean, though frankly we have some wiggle room, you are approved for a three-person selection committee. Then the decision is presented to the council. And once they all approve, a candidate awaits a start date. All depends on the ebb and flow of our headcount and how much money we have. More often than not, homies will come to me and get a start date. Moises comes in, and this is his first time I'm meeting him. A lone tattoo straddles his neck, and he's like a fullback. He doesn't have much of a neck to begin with. They told me to check in with you about a start date. 
I can't tell the tonal temperature of his statement. I ask a few questions and tell him I'll check with the council about bringing him in. So you're a father, he says, then half turns in his chair to point at everyone in the packed reception area. And these are your children. Before I can formulate whatever I'm to say next, he cuts me off. Now, I will tell you why I came into your office. He looks at the floor and I wait for him. Can I be your son? His stocky body leans forward and he grips his face with his hands. I sense the crying may take some time. But before too long, I too lean forward and whisper, imagine what a gift it would be to have a son like you. The crying accelerates and I let him be. Finally, he looks at me and I hand him several Kleenex. The one thing, the one thing, he says, that is the one thing I only ever wanted to hear from my own father. So this is this gift of love and thoughts and words and deeds. Let's sit for a minute. So remembering to be the open hand, not the fist, everyone you meet, the awareness, infinite love as you, as your perspective. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.